You're listening to Fueling the Future of Transport, hosted by Tammy Klein, the founder and CEO of Transport Energy Strategies. We'll talk all about the fuels and energy it takes to keep the world moving forward. Welcome to the show, everyone. So great to have you here. Um, I am so excited today uh, to have with me Michaela Grubb. Um, Michaela is Director of Clean Fuels Technology uh, at Haldor Topso, and we're going to talk, well, clean fuels uh, <laughs> today. Um, Michaela is the host uh, with her colleague, Sylvain Verdier, of the Fuel for Thought uh, podcast. This is the Fueling the Future podcast, and we're just talking that there really aren't a lot of uh, podcasts that are actually out there that are really digging deeply into the transport energy space. So um, I was on their show a couple of years ago, and now I am turning the tables. The podcaster is interviewing the podcaster uh, and the expert. So Michaela, welcome to the program. Great to have you. Thank you so much, Tammy. I've really been looking forward to it. I'm also a little bit excited about being on the other side of the table. <laughs> yes, flipping it, flipping it as it yes. were. So to get right into it, uh, for the listeners who may not be familiar with, with Halter Topso, can you talk about uh, the company, your role within the company, um, and then can you talk a little bit more about one of your, your main products, which is uh, Hydroflex? Yes, I'd be happy to. So I'm working for Topso, uh, which was founded by Dr. Halder Topso himself uh, on the 10th of April, 1940. And the reason I know this date very well is that for Denmark, the Second World War started on the 9th of April. And Halder Topso was actually supposed to go to the US with his wife, but his kids were sick, so they couldn't travel. And then Germany invaded Denmark, and Helder Topsu's wife told him, please go make a company. It should be a company that's a good place to work and it should improve uh, the world. Wow. And so, wise man, he did. <laughs> <laughs> I never knew that I mean, about the history of the, of the company, which I know you guys are now Topso, but old habits die yes. hard. <laughs> yeah. And, and he actually started the company in his parents' garage like any other innovator. Oh, my gosh. Uh, the first production took place in Sweden, also during the Second World War. And our first product was, as far as I recall, the sulfuric acid catalyst, followed by the ammonia catalyst, uh, then followed by hydroprocessing. Uh, and, and we have expanded since then and, and provide a wide range of technologies and catalysts. Uh, but Haldotopsi firmly believes that uh, a company doesn't mean anything unless it improves the lives of others and the society. So this sustainability agenda has always been on 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 the radar for us and has been uh, a guiding star. Uh, also, Haldotopsi was a very uh, good scientist. Uh, so so we have really uh, built our company on understanding what it is that we do. Uh, so, Heldotopsi as a company, uh, we have a very large portion of our revenue going to R&D. Uh, every year, it's between 8 and 10% of our annual revenue that we wow. invest in R&D. Um, we have, I think, around 400 people working in R&D. 
developing catalogs, developing uh, technology, proprietary hardware, and 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 that is us. Uh, we uh, we firmly believe that that we need to understand to improve. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's our company. Uh, so and, tell me more uh, about I, Hydroflex and and where's the big yes. draw for for customers for Hydroflex? I feel like Topso comes out with an announcement every week about um, a new uh, customer that has decided yeah. to go with Hydroflex. So what is it? For customer for for listeners who don't know and and what's drawing the customer well your view hydroflex is a hydro processing technology that upgrades all kinds of uh, renewable feedstocks it upgrades uh, the regular the first generation vegetable oils uh, it upgrades uh, second generation crude towel oil animal fats used cooking oils all these feedstocks that contain oxygen that contains uh, components that you don't see in the normal fossil industry. And our customers, they uh, choose us because we have a very long experience. We started up the first experiments. And also keep in mind that this area is pretty new, mm -hmm. uh, whereas oil refining has been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so we started up the first tests of vegetable oil in 2004. We designed the first unit in 2007. Wow. The first unit that we did was started up in 2010. So now we actually, and I'm proud to say, have more than a decade's experience. Right. The timing was so good. Yes. And, and this is actually one of the key points for our company is that we, we excel at doing what is really difficult. Mm -hmm. And it is difficult to upgrade these renewable feedstocks. So we have gathered quite a lot of expertise in this. And also due to the investment in R&D, we know these feedstocks. So that is what draws our customers. One of our other focus areas is, and keep in mind, I'm from Europe. We have a different kind of legislation here. We have a very strong focus on the advanced biofuels. So. Now, um, crude tail oil, uh, animal fats, vegetable oil, that's, that's uh, known stuff to yeah. us. We know yeah. how to handle it. Right. We have experience from running units, running all of these. What's crucial now is to understand and develop our process to accommodate all the advanced feedstocks that are coming. And they're coming in Europe, and they will be coming in the U.S. as well. Thing. So that's what we're doing. So, um, so the you know the, what you're saying, you know, in terms of of, of um, HVO or hydro treated uh, vegetable oil, which we call in the U.S. Uh, renewable diesel. Yeah. I mean, there's been a yeah. an absolute explosion, I would say, um, in yes. terms of plant development. I mean, in the in the U.S., but even in Canada, even in um, uh, parts of Europe. We're now seeing, you know, or I'm seeing some development in, in Asia, in China, um, and even in Latin America. So what do you think of the scale up um, that's happening um, with, with HBO um, around the world? And, and how do you see it happening in sort of more, um, you know, emerging um, areas like in Asia and in Latin America? 
Well, keeping you busy, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, we're pretty busy <laughs> at the moment. Uh, well, the scale of this happening uh, is one one of the fun things about this or interesting things is that this is legislation driven, one hundred percent. It is. If there wasn't any legislation, there wasn't any renewable diesel. Uh, and and I can't stress that enough <laughs> that that this really has a large impact. So the scale up is driven by legislation. In in Europe, we see that there is a competition for feedstock to have enough feedstock available because in in the U.S. there is enough feedstock as of now, and there will remain to be so for quite some time, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in, in Southeast Asia, there is an excess of palm oil because European, Europe has banned the import of uh, palm oil for fuels. And this means that there's a surplus in, in Asia, and they also have used cooking oils and all kinds of other oils that they also want to produce. So. Okay, so getting back to the point, in, in Europe, we see that there's a demand for feedstock, a very large demand. Mm -hmm. And it's actually very interesting to watch this sort of uh, geo uh, politically. Uh, yeah. You get to sit in a, in a little helicopter and, and look down and see that these trends that, that when Europe is banning palm oil, there's automatically some movement in Southeast Asia because you need you need to keep your people employed in each country. So there are mm -hmm. actually mandates in Southeast Asia for some countries to use palm oil. Right, right. Uh, we're looking very much also at China and, and when they start utilizing their own used cooking oil, because I think it's 40% of the used cooking oil that's used in Europe uh, originates from China. So the moment that China has a legislation that drives utilization of used cooking oil in China, Mm -hmm. uh, bye Europe bye Europe. will lack that feedstock. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, in Europe, there's furthermore a, a cap on how much crop-based feedstock you can use. So, so we we really see um, that it's a challenge to get enough feedstock in Europe. Mm -hmm. In Southeast America, in South America, we see a, a a lack of legislation. Yeah. for renewable favoring renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel. Because if you look to Brazil, they have a very good bioeconomy already. It's mm -hmm. just based on biodiesel fame mm -hmm. and bioethanol. Mm -hmm. so, so the question is, when will that change? Yeah, yeah. Will it change? Right. I want to ask you about China. You know, you mentioned, um, you know, there's there's some production that is is scaling up. Um, there is some potential to use some of their own or perhaps even all of their own use cooking oil. I do know of one project where they are directly bringing in palm oil, you know, the palm oil that Europe doesn't want, they're bringing in for, yes. for, for their project. I mean, do you see legislation happening in, you know, a China, for example, or maybe in some of the other um, countries you know, specifically on, um, you know, to, to sort of help scale up HVO and, and, and then I guess by extension, SAF. I think the legislation will more be about SAF. Mm -hmm. I think so too. Uh, yeah. 
because because flying or aviation is is a global uh, is a global market. So if you're flying from Copenhagen to Beijing, and and you want to improve your sustainability uh, numbers, and you also your your customers, your passengers are asking to fly more sustainable, they will ask how much sustainable aviation fuel is there on this flight. And I don't think the answer is good enough to say, yeah, we got the double from Copenhagen to Beijing, but from Beijing and Copenhagen, it's fossils. Right. So I think that's the legislation that we're going to see. Um, but but I can't, I can't. Uh, who see who has the crystal ball? Up. Yeah. Who has the yeah, crystal who, ball? Oh, I would love to have one. <laughs> um, very, very good for, <laughs> for, for business development, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, um, so the the question that I wanted to ask you too is, you know, you're right. I mean, um, you know, we're coming to a point where, you know, there's plenty of, you know, there there's there's some virgin oils, um, you know, out there. They're being used yeah. in the U.S. Um, they will ultimately be be kept um, under the the legislation um, in in Europe. There's only a certain amount of used cooking oil, and that seems to be rather, if not totally spoken for, the supply chain is developing quickly, and it probably will be <laughs> spoken for. Yeah. Um, and then there is, um, you know, animal fats and tallows, only so many animals in the world. I mean, you see a exactly. lot of these these producers that are, um, especially in the, re in the refining sector, that are just doing all of these deals, Bungie, ADM, Cargill, you know, traditional sort of agribusiness, um, you know, companies. So, um, you know, what you said at the beginning of the podcast was really, really compelling. It's like, um, you know, well, we know how to do those feedstocks, but it's the, you know, it's these advanced um, feedstocks that really, yeah. you know, th those will be coming in the future and they're going to have to, right? Because the, yes. the, the red two, uh, renewable energy directive two and renewable energy, energy directive three will require them. So, um, I think that's the question that, you know, to, to move, move up the talk about, about feedstock. That's the question is how much, when, and what will those feedstocks, you know, sort of, look like you know will they go to to, to europe um, because of the constraints there the refiners and other producers will just you know pay pay the premium to get those feedstocks and commercialize them because they have no choice um how do you see that all unfolding i mean there's just so much going on yeah that, that's true and 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 the advanced feedstocks are the holy grail <laughs> <A little bit. laughs> they are in this area yes. because they are the key to unlock it all uh, because they're financed amount of, of of first and second generation. Also, I I see that in Europe there's a, a willingness, not enough willingness though, to invest in these development projects, the solid to liquid conversion as I like to call them. Right. But we do see some emerging uh, companies that are at the demo scale and a few that are at a commercial scale, but it, it's a rather small commercial scale. Right. Uh, because these technologies are also typically difficult to scale. There are so many things that you need to take into account when you are uh, converting this solid waste or solid biomass. You don't, because I think to, 
uh, digress a little. It's mm -hmm. all about greenhouse gas emissions. Right. How do you keep your greenhouse gas emission as low as humanly possible? And this means that, okay, I'm talking myself into a corner here, I feel, <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but a little bit that the advanced feedbacks are crucial to unlock this. Right. We will need to scale up the processes to a certain amount of capacity. But actually what is most important is that the advanced feedstocks need to be stable so that mm -hmm. they can be transported because right. the scale of an, a solid to liquid conversion plant may not justify an entire Hydroflex unit. Right. Hmm. You may need you may need to have a delocalized uh, a solid to liquid conversion facility, mm -hmm. have a stable oil, and then transport it to a biorefinery. Right. Because so sort of a place minute, that would process like you know municipal solid waste. It's got to sort of pre pre treated or or or, or deal with yeah, those solids and, and liquid. Yeah. Yeah. Liquefied, yeah. because the point is, when you have, for example, woody biomass, you have 50% water in it, unless you dry it. Right. So you don't want to transport that over long distances. Mm -hmm. You want to increase the energy density of it, and then you want to transport it as short as possible, but still, you need to transport it uh, to a facility that has the scale where it's economically feasible to scale it up. Right, right. So, so I, I imagine a, a future where there will be delocalized solid to liquid conversion plants, and some of them will be uh, co-located with a hydroflex unit. Mm -hmm. um, so so that, that is the future I see. Um, and um, yeah, that's, that's what I see. Do you see, I mean, you know, to me, it seems like, okay, um, you know, maybe there's enough incentive in in red two or three to really to to really do that. But it it seems like in the in the U.S. I don't know that there really is at this particular moment, unless and until you know um, you know CI uh, carbon intensity requirements tighten under the low carbon fuel standard, and then it becomes sort of maybe a little more economically justifiable and feasible. And then you ensure that credit credit prices. Which have have dipped in that program um, yeah. over the over the last year, probably because of all the renewable diesel announcements out there, or at least yeah. in part, um, you know that they really stay strong. So they need to really stay around around two hundred, uh, you know, dollars U.S. dollars yes. per ton. Um, and then, you know, I think, but but I think barring that. Um, because I think the RFS2 renewable fuel standard program in the U.S. does not is not enough. I think for um, I think to incent that kind of thing. So it seems like to me what is needed is if we want um, you know a refinery of the future or a, a, an HVO producer um, of the future. It seems like you know we need those programs Red Two and Three and, and LCFS. But we also need to incent somehow that yes. aspect of the supply chain, you know, to really transition yes. to those low carbon um, or no carbon or yes. net negative carbon, you know, feedstocks. Yes. And 
I don't see that recognition. Maybe, maybe there's some recognition, but I don't see it translating into policy. And I think that's no. key to un, un, uh, helping to unlock this as well as sort of, if you want these annex, um, you know, 9A, I Mom, think, right. beat stocks yeah. to happen. It's like, yeah. you know, there's got to be sort of targeted, I think, you know, funding yes. to sort of get those projects exactly. off the ground. Yeah, and I don't and see that happening. US. Nope. And I see that as in U.S. and in Europe, and, and there really is a very strong need for funding. Yeah. And yeah. So, so that is the, that is, that, that is absolutely correct. Yeah. Uh, funding is needed. So if we, if we, you know, municipal solid waste, um, things like that, um, other, these other, you know, woody biomasses, yeah. um, those, those kinds of things, it, you know, in the absence of, you know, any sort of support and, and incentive in this area, and just with the programs that we, that we have now, what's your take on like timeline, you know, could we see more, uh, proliferation commercialization in, you know, by 2030, 20, 2035, um, or is it a matter of these companies are going to have to invest because this is their pathway to staying alive. So it's just going to yeah. have to get done. So I think I've been in this space actually for, for quite some time. I, I think I'm also close to a decade now in this, uh, mm -hmm. in this field. And, and the development that I have seen over the last year or two has been amazing and has left me positive towards the future because I feel that there's been a lot of technologies that have been developed. They have lacked funding. They have lacked focus. There's been no incentive. It has been people who are really passionate about trying to save the world. But now there's actually also uh, legislation driving towards it, at least for Europe, mm -hmm. which means that in terms that there's a higher willingness to invest. And maybe they have also reached a certain technological maturity. So, so it, 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 it converges in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Now we just need to speed it up. Right, right. So... So I think we we see more and more uh, interest. We see more and more happening in this area. So it will happen. Uh, I hope, I certainly hope <laughs> that it will be there by 2030. Yeah. If if not, um, if not even before, a few years before. Yes, exactly. I also think one of the important things to keep in mind is that a big part of uh, what you do when you're hydroprocessing is you, especially for the renewable feedstock, is you consume a lot of hydrogen. Mm -hmm. The majority of that hydrogen originates from fossil sources. Right. It originates from steam methane reforming mm -hmm. of natural gas, which is fossil. Mm -hmm. There are many solutions out there, and, and we have a few of them. We have our H2 bridge technology where we utilize the off-gases from the renewable feedstock to produce hydrogen, which means that you need a lot less uh, fossil uh, hydrogen, so to speak. But now we also have a solution that we call blue hydrogen that's common in the market, but that's where you uh, capture carbon. Mm -hmm. And this is actually also really important. Right. And mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense 
if if you think about it, uh, no matter which type of hydrocarbon that you're doing steam methane reforming on to produce hydrogen, you will emit uh, CO2. Mm -hmm. That's a fact. That's yeah. how you make it. Yeah. Uh, you can't really you, you can't go against the laws of nature. Yes. Uh, so so you have CO2, but if you capture that, you also get quite a big part of the way. And if you then utilize that CO2 to go via a different route, like the Fischer-Tropsch route, to produce more sustainable fuel, mm -hmm. then it it sort of it it becomes better and better. Yes. Uh, and these technologies are out there, so they are available. So before we sort of get all all depressed about not having <laughs> enough advanced feedstock available and what are we going to do, keep in mind that there are also other solutions to capture the CO2. Right. And, and really sort of, of the, the circularity and it's and it's being, you know, yeah. you know carbon smart is sort of the, the, the turban yeah. terminology. And that'll bring yes. down the overall footprint, at least at the at the production center or the refinery in, in this case. Yeah. So um, and and it's yeah. also a more holistical view instead of like just yeah. just looking at a hydro processing unit, uh, broaden the scope because we need to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions in every step of the way. Right. And if we can capture the CO2 as well, we're even better. So so it's uh, it's about opening your perspective somewhat. Yeah. So we we talked a little bit about about um, policy and and the impact of policy or the impact of a vacuum of policy. So I want to ask you a little bit about sustainable aviation uh, fuel. Do you see, especially on the the, the refiner backed um, HVO facilities, do you see them preparing to transition uh, in the near future to um, SAF? And and again, do you think the policies are sufficient um, or will be sufficient in the next few years to really make that happen? What's what's your view? Well, over the last year, actually, we have seen, I'm not going to call it an entire pivot, but <laughs> but sort of a half pivot. Min mini pivot? Well, yeah, a mini pivot, or at least uh, from we heard, all everything we heard was renewable diesel, let's go renewable diesel and let's produce some more renewable diesel. Somebody was like, hey, let's produce some staffs. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that has really been a change in the recent year. And I think that's due to the legislation. Uh, and also due to the fact that some European countries, Sweden and Norway, have started to implement legislation. So in yeah. 2021, Sweden started out by mandating 0.58% sustainable aviation fuel in the, the flights to and from Sweden. That, that starts it. Right. Because the thing is also a question of if you're a refinery, you really want to know that somebody will offtake yeah. your products right right and and now we see that the legislation is coming and and I, as far as i hear it's rumored that uh, that there'll be some legislation in the u.s as well and that that's going to be very interesting to see yeah the yeah. effects of that yeah i think that's that you know i mean i unfortunately that was part of the you know build back better uh legislation that ultimately um, you know, did, really didn't progress uh, so far last year. But that wasn't because of those kinds of tax, tax uh, credits. That was because of some other issues in the legislation. But I do think, 
you know, I think I think the way forward in the U.S. is is not going to be, you know, you know, red two and three complicated regulatory regime. You know, low carbon fuel standard in California, complicated regulatory regime. I really doubt, um, especially given the the political environment in the U.S., whether we would see anything like that on a nationwide level. But incentives people can really get behind. Yeah. They're a lot less contra controversial. Um, and there is a lot of momentum, I think, behind um, a SAF or an uh, SAF, Sustainable Aviation Fuel uh, Tax Credit, that is really meaningful and provides enough of, a, of an incentive, um, you know, for producers and then also for the airlines. So I'm, I'm yeah. bullish uh, on that. I don't know when that's going to happen. I had thought it would would sort of come down this year, and it's not too late. Um, but I do see that happening in the in the next um, year year or so. Um, you yeah. know that that coming to fruition, and I I think that will be, you know, a game changer, yeah. and how will have ripple yeah, effects it, around around the world. I yeah, think. completely. And we we see that with the renewable diesel and the Californian legislation that that has really been driving a lot mm -hmm. of uh, of the projects. And I think if an incentive in the same way came for sustainable aviation fuel, that will also drive quite a lot. And I tried to I compare it a little bit. Europe is uh, all stick, no carrot. <laughs> in the US, <laughs> that's both a carrot and a stick. Yeah. And, and that really works. So yeah. it would be great in Europe if we also have a carrot. Um, yeah, hope, hopefully you'll 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 get a few. Um, yes, um, yeah. I think I think carrots are probably going to be the way to go, and I think it's going to be driven by, you know, again the, our own political environment, which is highly divided and very partisan. You know, so it's it's sort of yeah. like we we can get behind incentives. Um, they're not likely yeah. to be legally challenged, but the moment you do an S, uh, you know, a SAF mandate or a um, you know national low carbon fuel standard program. I think that's going to be, you know, yeah. it's not it's not impossible, but it's um, you know going to be a little bit of a longer road and more fraught because you know we like carrots, but we like suing people as well. It's sort of our yeah. pastime here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not as much in Europe, you know. It's we really like suing yeah. people. Um, so yeah. yeah. So when when we talk about that, one of the other challenges for Europe is the lack of feedstock, because when you look at the SAF uh, certification, the and I know it by heart, ASTM C75-66-20, <laughs> I think it is now, that's the certification for the sustainable aviation fuel. And there are some feedstocks that are approved. That's the virgin oil, that's used cooking oil, and tallow. As soon as you have an advanced feedstock or something that's not one of those, then you actually need to produce it fully on spec and produce enough to have a test flight. Yeah. This is hugely expensive. <laughs> this yes. is really millions of dollars yeah. to do this. And that is a challenge. Mm -hmm. That is uh, one of the main barriers uh, for sustainable aviation fuel worldwide is that it's so difficult to get it approved. And also, I must say, as a person who flies once in a while, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm pretty okay with them being super strict on what they put in the engine because if you're driving a car and it suddenly the motor suddenly stops, then okay, you get out, you push the car maybe. <laughs> uh, but you can't really do that in a plane. So, yeah. so I think there's also... yeah. 
we need to find the right way yeah. to approve of these feedstocks because it can't be so in the future that every time you change a little bit of the feedstock, then you need to go through all this uh, certification and approvals again and again. Then there's no business case. Right, right. Actually, that's really interesting. I mean, I had never thought, um, given a, a ton of thought about the um, how onerous, um, I mean, yes, there's a safety issue, there is a public relations and, and sort of marketing yeah. issue, public assurance, you know, assuring the public that this is a this is a safe product, and that's all understandable. But yeah, I question whether, um, you know, like stream, you know, streamlining that process you know, as yeah. these feedstocks come on, come online, if there's a way to do that and maintain the the integrity of, of what you're trying to accomplish. And that's not something I personally have given tons of thought to of, of just no. how difficult that is and how expensive it is. I mean, there could be yeah. government funding. I mean, heck, I mean, Europe is funding. All, we just saw the re, repower, you know, EU, you know, yeah. being announced. Yeah. And that's what, $200 billion? Like, we can't figure this yeah. out. I mean, <laughs> you know, like, to maybe yeah. help help um, with that that process yeah. or to begin like targeted incentive, yeah. targeted funding at that at that critical juncture so that the, the testing can be done. I mean, that's that's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Why aren't we in that's Parliament? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, I really so, don't want to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're happy where you are. You'll just keep doing your thing. Me, me, yes, too. Exactly. me too. Exactly. Me too. Let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that. Um, okay, so my last question for you, and this is kind of a fun one. What excites you most about this space and why the space that you're working in? Yeah, I, I thought about this. Is that what excites me is that this actually makes an impact. This is actually doing exactly what Held Topsy wanted us to do. Yeah. That yeah. is improve the lives of others and the society around us. It makes a difference. And it also means that when my kids look at me, when I'm going away on business travel and looking at me and saying, mom, you know that it's not very sustainable to fly. <laughs> I can <laughs> tell them, well, I'm working on it. I'm working on it and it's getting better. So that actually excites me that I think we will hopefully in a timely manner leave a better future for yeah. our children. Yeah, yeah. Better well, that is great. That is great. And, you know, I, I do think that it's it's um, people's children that I think are really driving this because, you know, unlike me when I was a child I mean my parents told me to do something and I pretty much um did it <laughs> there was no like you know uh thoughtful dinner table discussions about greenhouse gas emissions but the children today I think are so sophisticated and they're yeah. asking questions and yeah they're holding our feet uh to the fire and I think that yeah, yeah. you want to be able to look your kids in in the eye so to speak and tell them yeah. what they're doing yeah this week, my son's class has a has a theme week about uh, garbage and pollution. So, and he's nine. <laughs> so we're educating these uh, citizens that are actually conscious about waste and and sustainability. So, so that that really excites me, uh, and it also excites me to be part of 
this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. We are experiencing the energy transition. It's not every generation that gets to experience this. And to just be a little, little tiny piece in that puzzle to help it move the right way, that excites me so much. So we'll end it there. I agree. I feel the same way from my my little piece of the of the energy transition uh, puzzle. Uh, Michaela, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. It was great, great to talk to you and have you. And I look forward to doing it again. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you for having me. It's been great. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to Fueling the Future of Transport. This show is hosted and edited by Tammy Klein, produced by Carolyn Schneer, and engineered by Alexander Nikolic. To hear more great episodes of this show, learn more, and sign up for a free bi-weekly newsletter, visit transportenergystrategies.com.